Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Clear and Convincing, the show that looks at criminal cases from the perspective of the courts, not the court of public opinion. We're Lisa O'Brien, podcasting from New Orleans, Louisiana, where Jonathan David Bro was born at 4.47 p.m. on Monday, March 25, 2019. Jonathan weighed 6 pounds, 13 ounces, and was 18 and a half, uh, 18.5 inches long. Mom, baby, Dad and Nana are all doing well. And Michael Carnahan from Little Rock, Arkansas, where Keith Humphrey was appointed as the new chief of the Little Rock Police Department. Tonight in part three, we'll continue profiling, we'll continue discussing the Charles Manson, California versus Charles Manson. Uh, We'll get into a discussion of the investigations of the murders and some of the other murders that Manson and members of his family are suspected of being involved in. We'll also um, look a little bit ahead to the trials uh, and arrest and indictment of the family members. As always, we are a live show, and calls are welcome. Our phone number is 347-989-1171. Perils of a live show. (laughs) (laughs) I know, right? I, I don't even know what happened. Like, it was still showing like it was playing at the, you know, time break where I usually stop it, and then all of a sudden it went to start all over again. I don't know why. <laughs> but uh, definitely uh, <clears throat> congratulations on the baby there in New Orleans, but also um, wanted to speak on the whole um, issue with the police chief that you brought up. I definitely hope that uh, brings some makes a difference in the Little Rock uh, Police Department because I don't know if you've been following it, but they've been having some issues here recently. Yeah, I, I've, I've been every week I look at the, you know, news articles for Little Rock. I try not to pick anything too heavy. Mm-hmm. Uh, I try to pick something light or fun or informative. Well, shoot, uh, I like to and, you like to give me a hard time about the Razorbacks. Did you see where uh, we fired our basketball coach earlier today? I saw that post from Brad, but I had already written yeah, my intro. Kinda, I hadn't proved it, but I'd written it. Yeah, we're kind of uh, we're kind of happy about it. But apparently, I was reading that the basketball players obviously are 
pretty broken up about it. Uh, well, we had some uh, some drama with LSU right yeah, before the NCAA it, uh, started. Did that guy get fired, or because I know there's an interim in place? I think so. I I really honestly, all I know is the the men in my office were stomping around cursing. And aggravated <laughs> because <laughs> NCAA was about to start, <laughs> and something horrible had happened at LSU <laughs> basketball. Yeah, so. I mean, but, you know, to give them credit, as much as I hate giving LSU any credit, uh, they've been playing pretty well. I think they're still they're still in it, so it's pretty good. Mhm. Well, that's like but anyway. you know, people were all upset when they let Les Miles go. From football, and I think our football program has gotten better and better uh, with Coach Woodrum. Let's be honest. We all love hearing Coach O talk. I know. He tickles me. I know. Every time the blind side is on, the movie Blind Side, I watch that movie so that I can see him recruiting Michael Orr. But when yeah. he was at Ole Miss. Yeah. I love I that. Still I still remember how awkward just... it was seeing uh, Houston Nutt in that movie with an Arkansas shirt on because he had already moved on to LSU or to Ole Miss. And, uh, right. Yeah, moved on to Ole Miss and well, we fired him like a year I, previously. I think Saban had already gone to Alabama. Yep. He wasn't, he wasn't at LSU anymore. And, uh... Orgeron had moved somewhere Lou other Holt. than Ole Miss. Yeah, Lou Holtz. And Knight had left Arkansas. Yep, Houston had left Arkansas. Lou Holtz had left, um, South Carolina. I think, actually, all the coaches' placements were wrong. Because I think Coach O was actually at USC at that time, too. Probably Which, so. Probably so. And I, I, I like that re- that recruiting montage that they did mm-hmm. with in the in the movie, I I love that. You know, talking about how somebody took him to a a, a a booby bar and he didn't sleep for a week, and oh, you yeah, know she was, was scolding. I think that was Nick Saban, and, or no, or that was um, might have been talking to Coach O. Yeah. Fulmer, I think, was the only one that was actually coaching at the same place. <laughs> right. And here's a little bit of trivia for you that I didn't know, and you as a sports fan might not have known, but do you remember uh, until a few years ago he was the coach at uh, Ole Miss, but do you remember a guy by the name of Hugh Freeze? No. At Ole Miss? Well, no. he was actually the head coach at Ole Miss, and uh, – before that, he was the head coach at Arkansas State. That was actually his high school coach. Michael Orr? Yeah. So it's kind of oh, funny okay. how that parlayed into – that's kind of funny how that kind of parlayed into Hugh Freeze being that old Miss. Okay, yeah. I I didn't recognize the name, but he was at the uh, – I can't remember the name of school now. 
They have fictional names in the movie. I think the name of the Christian school was actually changed uh, that he attended in high school. I think they actually changed it, but, you know, uh, that was actually his real-life high school coach was uh, Coach Breeze. So I thought that was pretty interesting. Okay, yeah. That was. I, I, like I said, I didn't recognize the name, but I remember the coach. Uh, you know, because he had and never played football. Played he had never played peewee or anything. Yep. And I think he was like a sophomore in high school before he even started playing. Yeah. Yeah. So. He had... Uh, he said not that wasn't entirely accurate. He had said that uh, he said that you know he played a little bit of peewee, but I don't think he's. I think he said he never really played anything very organized. Right, exactly. And also, though, as as I understand it, he also was a great basketball player. Yeah, absolutely. I believe he was a two sport athlete at in high school. Mhm. So, but, uh, yes, we that's... We need to go down rabbit holes, Lisa. I know, I know. Well, we <laughs> we don't talk on the phone during the week. This is true. So, tonight is what, you know, Tuesday nights are when we kind of catch up. This is true. This is true. Good point. And, and it's only a nine-minute rabbit hole. Yeah, very... We actually did good this time. So... All right, so, again, just to anybody who's listening, uh, part one, we talked about the victims of the Hinman, Cielo Drive, LaBianca murders, and then we talked about Charlie Manson and some of his family members. We kind of finished talking about family members in uh, part two, and then we touched on the murders uh, a little bit, so tonight we're going to get a little bit more into the murders because we're going to talk about not only murders in which Manson or, or family members are suspected of being involved, but we're also going to talk about the investigation of Gary Hinman's murder, the Cielo Drive murders, and the LaBianca murders, and then the events that led to a jailhouse statement that broke the entire case. Okay. And okay, led definitely. to indictment of the family members involved in the murders. <clears throat> so right. that's where we stand. Good luck. <laughs> wow. All right. Um, prior to July of 1969, there are some murders that are thought to have possibly been committed by either Charles Manson or members of his family, Um, mostly because either the victims were rumored to be hangers-on with the family or uh, they were found in areas in which the family was uh, where they were at a time when they were there. Uh, The first ones that we have are Nancy Warren and Clyda Delaney. Um, Nancy was the wife of a California Highway Patrol 
officer. She was eight months pregnant, which is like Sharon Tate. Uh, and Clyda Delaney was her grandmother and also her neighbor. They were found on October 13, 1968, in Ukiah, California. Um, one of the other reasons, aside from Nancy's pregnancy and her marriage to a highway patrol officer, which I'm sure Charles Manson would not have approved of, um, they were also beaten and strangled to death and leather thongs, which is similar to the thong used to bind Lino LaBianca, um, uh-huh. were found with their bodies. There's never been anybody charged or arrested for those murders. Um, and you'd think that if Susan Atkins or, or Charles Manson had been involved, that over the years something would have slipped. Or Susan right. would have they talked were, about it because well, she loved attention and couldn't here. couldn't keep her yeah. mouth shut. <laughs> you think, think but, honestly, um, Charlie would be like, "Well, seeing as how you already got me for life, I might as well tell you." Right. Well, he was. He did not want to. He never wanted to admit to actually. He did admit to one murder that's not even really a murder, but we'll get to that in mm-hmm. a minute. <laughs> and then. Uh, December 27, 1968, Marina Hobbe, uh, I believe her name is pronounced. Her father was German. I don't remember my German well enough to know how to pronounce her last name. She was a 17-year-old college freshman uh, who was kidnapped from her parents' driveway following a date. And she was found two days later beaten and stabbed to death in a brushy embankment on Mulholland Drive in Los Angeles. Uh, there are rumors that she had been an acquaintance of Manson and the family in the months leading up to her death, but nothing has been verified. Uh, again, nobody's been arrested, nobody's been charged, and as far as we know, no one has taken responsibility uh, or claimed to have been involved in her murder. And then uh, this is a crime, more likely than not, that actually pretty much kicked off Manson's uh, helter-skelter plan and kicked it into high gear. And that was the shooting of an African-American drug dealer named Bernard Latapapa Crow. Crow and Watson got into a dispute over a dope deal, as happens, you know. When right. you're dealing dope. And uh, Crow threatened Manson and the family to retaliate for the for the drug deal going bad. Um, right. Watson apparently called Charlie. Charlie came in. He shot Bernard Crow, who he believed was a Black Panther. Uh-huh. Which was a paramilitary protest organization back in the 60s and early 70s. Um, And so Charlie thought, I think, thought his ass was grass. Interestingly, proving how inept Charles Manson could be, Bernard Crow didn't die. Charlie believed he killed him, but he didn't die. 
And Bernard Crow, being in the business that he's in, probably did not was not forthcoming to uh, authorities as to what happened, how it happened, and who did it. Right. He was more about the I'll take care of it myself type of situation. Correct. Correct. And uh, but every uh, a lot of uh, a lot of profilers that have been interviewed on these various documentaries, and uh, a couple of the people who've written books about Manson and the family, they think that this is what really kicked Helter Skelter into high gear, because Charlie wanted to be wanted to kick off the revolution, and then be hiding in the desert and safe while the chaos uh, destroyed the country, and then to come out of the desert and be in charge. Right. Um, so that was, uh, so So Bernard Crow was basically an assault, not a murder. Okay. And then on July 17, 1969, 16-year-old Mark Waltz was found beaten and shot to death, and his body was dumped on Mulholland Drive. Uh the day before, Walt, who was another Manson associate, uh, was hanging out at Spawn Ranch, and he disappeared from the Santa Monica Pier following a day of fishing. Um, Walt's brothers believed Manson was involved, but again, there really was never any evidence, and, and Manson and nobody else in this family has ever claimed responsibility for Mark Waltz's murder. Okay. And then, of course, that brings us to Gary Hinman on July 27th. And then after, um, including after Manson's, Manson was arrested in October. And he and Susan Atkins, Bobby Boussoulet, uh were all in jail. Uh-huh. On November 5th, 1969, John Zero Hot was found in his house off Venice Beach with a single gunshot wound to the head. Uh, Family members were there, and they claimed, they told police that they had all been playing Russian roulette, and Hot unfortunately got the bullet. Um, There were rumors that Hot had been cooperating with authorities after being arrested the month before in October, but um, again, there's never been anything to tie anybody to the murders, right? Or to his to, to prove it was a murder and to tie anyone to the to a murder. And then November seventh, nineteen sixty nine, two um, Scientology pro- members who belong to the process. Uh, were found stabbed to death in an alley near the LaBianca house. Uh, Manson had at one time flirted with Scientology and been connected to Scientology through, I think, Bruce Davis. But again, it's an unsolved... It's in that time frame. Manson at that time was in jail. Right. Uh, So it would have had to have been other members of the family... And I don't see that they were even connected to the family, even though Manson, Manson, Manson used Scientology and Dale Carnegie to improve his shtick to manipulate people. 
and to be more successful yeah. in manipulating people. So, and then November 16, 1969, a girl by the name of Jurbinson, Jurbitson, I think she was South African, was found stabbed to death in an embankment bordering Mahan Drive near where uh, Hobbs' body was found. And Reed was John Hout. So there are people who believe that uh, Reed was present when Hout was killed, and then they killed her in order to cover up their crime. Reed was not identified until DNA testing was done 20, 30 years later. Mm-hmm. I think sometime in the 2000s. Uh, up until that time, she was known as uh, Jane Doe. Okay. And then on December 1st, 1969, Joel Pugh, who was the husband of Sandra Good, was found dead in a, a London hotel room. Uh, his wrists had been slit and his throat cut, and the words Jack and Joe were written in blood on the hotel room wall. It just so happens that at that time, Bruce Davis, who had not yet been arrested, was in Great Britain. Uh So there are those who suspect that, for whatever reason, they decided to get rid of Joel Pugh. And then uh, during the trial, and we'll talk about this a little bit more at the trial um, when we get to the trial next week, in November of 1970, uh, uh, Leslie Van Houten's attorney, Ronald Hughes, vanished during a camping trip in the Susby Hot, Str- Hot Springs, which are located in, in Ventura County in California. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was He went camping during a, a one-week recess of the Tate-LaBianca murder trial. <clears throat> uh, his... Severely decomposed body was found months later by a pair of fishermen uh, in the right. in the Hot Springs Fort. It was a forest. There were rocks, you know, I guess hills, mountains, whatever you want to want to say. Um, I don't. This is one I don't think involved any of the family members because I think what happened was he went camping during. November and they had some rain and pretty wicked weather at that time and the people he was camping with said oh we're out of here and left but he wanted to stay and so I think and based on everything that I read about it I think that what happened was he just got overtaken by flooding because there was flash flooding in that area and then he just got overtaken by flash flooding and uh, ended up, you know, he was found, I think, between some rocks, but ended up getting carried by the water into the rocks and, and died as a result of that. Um, okay. His body, by the time it was found, it was too decomposed to determine any cause of death <clears throat> at all. He and Manson had some clashes, which we'll talk about during the during discussion of the trial. But again, I just I don't think that they. Uh, 
I don't think that any of the threats Manson made were ever carried out. And by that time, November 28, 1970, the followers were getting kind of thin. Mm-hmm. And they were so busy with the trial in Los Angeles that I just can't see them going after Hughes in bad weather conditions in a kind of remote area of Ventura County. Right. Um, so, and then the last two are James Willett and Lauren Willett, who uh, they were living with three Manson loyalists and a group of white supremacists with whom Manson had aligned himself behind bars. Um, James was shot with a shotgun, and his wife was shot in the back of the head. Two family members, Priscilla Cooper and Nancy Pittman, were convicted of the crime, and they each did five years in prison. I guess they claimed self-defense. Okay. I don't know. Um, I'll look that up for, I'll see if I can find anything about that next week for next week because that that's pretty interesting um, yeah that's not a lot of time and then in 1977 in January 1977 a documentary maker named Lawrence Merrick who had uh, made a 1970 film about Manson which contained a series of interviews with man- family members and footage of the family's life at Spawn Ranch was shot to death while he was leaving his studio office. Oh, wow. Um, that one's why? never been solved. Yeah. Pardon? I just can't understand why if... Why, I would think Manson would ha- be happy with that guy. That guy's giving him attention. Uh, yeah, I, I, I don't think... Um, and actually, there was a special on... Fox, so if you have Hulu, I think you can watch it. It's called The mm-hmm. Lost Tapes, and it's really good because it does, it does show behind-the-scenes, unaired footage from that documentary. Okay. Um, so... Uh, in fact, and Merrick, Merrick was one of Sharon Tate's old acting coaches. Oh, huh. So, but yeah, I I don't think because that's something that benefited or that Charles Manson would have seen as potentially yeah. benefiting him. Um, and uh, the the only thing we really have is that uh, a heavy set young man shot him and then ran and was never caught. So, so that is the the list of. Potential murders. Okay. In which Manson, I, I I know I had a couple more on there that weren't on my list, on my outline, but right. we call that laying out. Hey, there ain't nothing wrong with that. So, all right. So we move on to the in- murder investigations and. Uh, In 1969, I want to preface this, the FBI was not doing behavioral profiling. J. Edgar Hoover was still in charge, 
of the FBI, and he did not believe that psychology was any help in solving crime or investigating crime. So, um, and I'm, you know, I'm sure John Douglas and Robert Ressler and Roy, uh, Roy Hazelwood and, you know, the other, the other gentlemen who helped develop profiling were starting to see and understand and do, you know, their preliminary work, but it wasn't official. And people weren't being trained. Mm-hmm. to look at crimes and look at evidence and, and crime scenes in the way that they do now or that, you know, we think they should do now. Right. So uh, Hinman's case, Hinman's house was in Los Angeles County, and so the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Office was in charge of his murder investigation. Uh, they did find some spent shell casings in the kitchen area, uh, they found a fingerprint from Bobby Boussoulet in the kitchen living room area. Mm-hmm. I think it was kind of almost like an efficiency. <clears throat> there was a kitchen and then it was a living room bedroom. Uh, of oh. course, they found um, Gary Hinman's body, and uh, he had been stabbed. He wasn't found for several days, so he wasn't in the greatest shape when he was found. Uh, but they were able to determine a cause of death, which was a stab wound through the heart. And uh, Boussoulet was arrested in San Luis Obispo asleep in Hinman's white Fiat station wagon, which had also been seen at Spawn Ranch. And other members of the family had been seen in possession of the vehicle, so uh, and it belonged to Hinman. So he was arrested on suspicion of murder. Right. But he wasn't talking, and he wasn't giving them any leads as to who else was involved in the murder. And, of course, as we you know remember, that was Susan Atkins and Mary Bruner with a cameo by Charles Manson and Bruce Davis. Right. And the motive behind Hinneman's murder was uh, Manson believed he had inherited money or he was well off, and Manson wanted that money for dune buggies and and, uh, helter-skelter. Right. So Hinneman was killed on the 25th, 26th, 27th, somewhere in there, Boussole was arrested, I think, in early August. And so the Tate murders, the Seattle Drive murders, occurred on August 9th. Right. Um, and at at this point, they don't, the, the sheriff's office has nothing. Nobody's talked, nobody's talking, and so... They're, you know, doing the best they can. They did find another thing that they did find was Boussoulet had written political piggy in blood on the wall near him, near him in his body. 
and he had used mm-hmm. his hand to to make what looked like a paw print because the idea was to make people think the Black Panthers committed this murder. So paw print will make them think of okay. Black the Panther paw print. The only reason why I say black. that, that were the Black Panthers known to make a paw print like that or something? I don't know that they were necessarily known to make a paw print or use paw print symbology or symbols, but in Manson's mind, paw print would lead police directly to the Black Panthers. Ah, uh, okay. This isn't so necessarily... Man- see, that's... I, and I think that's a, when people are discussing murder cases and motives for murder and and different different crimes and different things that criminals have done. They're trying to apply logic and common sense and reason, mm-hmm. and that's not necessarily that that is that's not necessarily helpful because right. you have to just understand. They believed it. And that's the person who committed the murder believed that a paw print on a wall was going to point police toward Black Panthers. Of course. And so that's why they left it there. Okay. That makes sense. I, well, I shouldn't say it makes sense, but, you know. <laughs> and sometimes it doesn't make sense. That's the thing with murder cases. It doesn't make sense to us, but it did make sense to them at the time under the circumstances. So then on Boussoulet's arrested on August 6th, they also find a knife in the car uh, in the rear spare tire well under a rubber mat. So you know somebody's trying to hide that knife. And Boussoulet is arrested uh, because he's in possession of the car that belonged to a dead man. And um, so on August 9th, Manson picks Watson, Krenwinkel, Atkins, and Kasabian. Mm-hmm. He picks Kasabian because she has a valid license and can therefore drive the getaway car. Watson okay. drove to Cielo Drive because it didn't matter. If they were pulled over, uh, Watson had told Kasabian to get rid of the, the weapons, and you know they would just abort for the night. But when they're on their way back right. to Spawn Ranch, Linda's going to be driving, and she's got a valid license just in case they're pulled over. Um, and you know that shows an element of planning uh-huh. on Manson's part because he's making sure that when they're on their way home after committing these murders, they're not going to end up all hauled into jail because somebody was driving without a license. Right. Makes sense. Hey, and we're going to make sure we're going to cover our tracks. Right, exactly, exactly. Um, now, at the Tate murders, uh, they did find a 
fingerprint from Patricia Krenwinkel somewhere mm-hmm. in the house. Um, and the word pig was written on the front door in Sharon Tate's blood. Uh, Steve Parent was shot to death. And I, be- I-, I watched a couple documentaries where they said he was also stabbed. Mm-hmm. Um, but the accounts that I read from Kasabian's testimony didn't say anything about stabbing him, just shooting him. And then um, they found uh, Wojtek Frykowski, who was on the front lawn or, or on a side lawn, uh, had been beaten, stabbed, and shot. Uh, they found piece of a gun butt plate, you know, the on the handle, on the right. handle of the gun, the little, I guess, kind of decorative plates or, or I don't, I'm trying to think of what they call it. I can't think of the word. But they found part of that there on the lawn where Tex Watson had bludgeoned him with the gun. And then, of course, Abigail Folger was stabbed to death. Um, Jay Sebring was shot. He and Sharon Tate were connected by a rope around each of their necks thrown over a high beam in the ceiling of the uh, living room. And Sharon had been stabbed to death. They also found in a guest house 25 yards from the Tate house, the Polanski house, uh, mm-hmm. A part-time filling caretaker by the name of William Garretson. Um, he had been home the night before. Parent had come to visit him, and then Parent left and was killed while he was leaving. Luckily for him, nobody went looking to see what was going on in the guest house. He claimed to have slept through the murders and to have not heard anything, but he may also have been um, somewhat impaired and perhaps thought he was imagining things or dreaming. Um, He was not treated very well by police. Uh, When they realized they heard a dog barking and they went to the guest house and they realized someone was in there, and so, of course, guns were drawn, and right. he was, uh, hand, you know, handcuffed and handled very roughly. Uh, he was questioned because the police at that time, this was Los Angeles Police Department, uh, they believed that Garrison did this. Right. Because they Absolutely. have five bodies if you and then one live person. Right. You know, five dead bodies and one live person 25 yards away on the property behind a gate and a fence. That is going to be, you know, I don't think that's an unreasonable inference to be drawn. He ended up passing a polygraph test, and then he was released after Lino and Rosemary LaBianca were killed. Uh, One of the other things that was found um, during the autopsy, I think they found that Abigail Folger and Wojtek Prakowski had 
drugs in their system. They found marijuana in Jade Sebring's car. And then there were a lot of rumors that went around about, you know, fast Hollywood lifestyle. Uh, even though Roman Polanski took great offense at that because that was not Sharon. Mm-hmm. Um, and but they they didn't they really didn't have anything else. I mean, right. the the assailants weren't known to anybody. Garrettson did not see anything. The only reason he's still alive. And um, so they were just trying to solve the murder figure out who did it was very, very little to go on. Um, and then, right. of course, the next night, the LaBianca murders happened. And, uh, you know, Rosemary LaBianca's son, Frank, comes home to find his mother and stepfather murdered. Um, again, there's writing on the wall, death to pigs, rise, and helter-skelter on the refrigerator. Uh Somebody's carved war into Lino LaBianca's stomach, I believe, and left a, uh, like a carving fork in his body and a knife in his neck. Um, uh-huh. he, they're bound with leather thongs. Well, you know, thongs like the little friendship bracelet things. Okay. Okay. Um, back in the 60s and 70s, leather... Fringe jackets, things like that, those were all very popular. Very stylish. Right. Um, so right. You were cool if you had a leather jacket. <laughs> thongs, they were not underwear. Right. <laughs> because now when I say thong, people probably think of underwear. Yeah, um, I was so, say, I mean, I'm not even going to question it because that's what I thought you were talking about. I was just like, okay, Manson's crazy, so maybe. So, and then, pardon me, and then Rosemary's found stabbed to death in the bedroom, also bound uh, with a pillowcase, and they, they each had pillowcases over their heads. Okay. And, of course, again, very little to go on. I don't think there was any physical evidence um, at the LaBianca house from anybody. Um, the only similarity is, you know, the writing on the wall, proverbially. Uh-huh. <clears throat> right. Um, but uh, so they had very little to go on. The Kate murders and LaBianca murders were both within Los Angeles City Police jurisdiction, but different um, detectives handled each of the investigations. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, in fall sometime, clothing discarded by the killers was found and then a gun with a broken handle was found 1.8 miles away from Sharon Tate's house because they had disposed of the gun and their clothing as they fled the Tate property. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, the police had little to go on. There's, If you watch the various documentaries, you'll see a lot of criticism of the 
detectives for not seeing that these crimes were connected and not working together. I mean, Hinman's investigators did go to LAPD and said, look, we had writing on our wall. We think these crimes are connected. And LAPD said, no, they're not. And sent the LA sheriff's detectives on their way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the Tate, the detectives investigating the Tate murders and the detectives investigating the LaBianca murders did not share information or see any connection or believe there was any connection between their crimes. This oh. actually is an example of when victimology can do more harm than good. Because in each of these murders, you have a different type of victim. Hinman, he's nobody. He's a music teacher, not very wealthy. Tate, Sharon Tate, an actress, uh, you know, probably pretty wealthy between herself and her husband, certainly the prospect of great, great wealth. Uh, Abigail Folger was extremely wealthy because she was an heir to Folger's Coffee. Um, and Wojtek Frykowski, not so, you know, not really wealthy, but for his association with Abigail Folger. And then Jay Sebring, also very wealthy. And they were all, you know, denizens of Hollywood. Right. So you're going to expect that that's going to be a little bit more priority, unfortunately. And finding drugs in two victims and drugs in a vehicle. And there were rumors about drugs at the house. That's all going to lead police to suspect that the motive behind the murders was drugs. As bizarre as the murders were, you know, they were going to believe it was drugs. And then you have Rosemary and Lino LaBianca, who are a married couple. He's a businessman, very wealthy, but he's a businessman. She's got her own business. They don't run in the same circles as Tate and her friends, so there's no connection between them. And again... What clues, what things that a crime scene can tell us about the offenders was not something that people really accepted or acknowledged or understood in 1969. Right. And so they felt even the writing, and and look at the media, with the media attention, Tate's case, the writing on the wall at La Bianca could have been a copycat. Right, absolutely. If there was as much attention with Hinman, if the words political piggy appeared in any story about Hinman's murder, the Tate murders could have been a copycat. True. You know, so I don't, I understand where the criticism comes from, but I think a lot of people who are doing the criticizing are using hindsight and seeing that, you know, these were all connected because we know now that they were all connected. Right. But what they had at the time, they had nothing to tell them. 
Correct. But, you know, at the time in in July, August, September, October of 1969, November of 1969 even, they're looking at a piece of the puzzle here and a piece of the puzzle there and a piece of the puzzle over here, and they haven't really seen where the pieces fit together. Mm-hmm. Now, at the Tate murders, they did find Watson and Krenwinkel's fingerprints. And interestingly enough, Ben Houghton admits to going around the house and wiping away fingerprints at the LaBianca crime scene. So I suspect that there were fingerprints being found was reported in the media mm-hmm. and at Hinman and at Tate at the Cielo Drive. So, of course, at La Bianca, Van Houten says, okay, well, I'm going to wipe stuff down. And they also changed. They used, uh, the girls used uh, Rosemary La Bianca's clothes to change out of their bloody clothes. Okay. And so that was August 10th. And the the suspected motive by police for the La Bianca murders was gambling debts. I think Lino had started uh, breeding and and racing horses. He had been in business for a long time. He he'd inherited the business from his dad. Uh, he had an Italian last name, and so they thought there was gambling or mafia or something, and there were rumors to that effect going around. And, you know, every, I think every crime, I've seen it with cases even that have happened in New Orleans. Um, I saw there was a, a, a woman was beaten and shot to death by her boyfriend. A police officer was shot to death trying to intercede and help her. And I mm-hmm. saw comments on Facebook from people saying she and the cop were having an affair. Oh, dear Lord. And that's why the man went crazy. That's where everybody went to and go. It's... They want some sort of scandal, which, I mean, honestly, well, it seems since we're enough. And, you know, I think sometimes people... They believe it, and so then they tell police, and then police can't corroborate it, and so they let it go. Right. But they'll continue to say it, and if you if you watch Making a Murderer, I mean, mm-hmm. you see advocates for Avery constantly putting out these rumors uh, that are totally uncorroborated, to this day uncorroborated. Right. And so one of the other things, I think I mentioned it last week, and you and perhaps Brad seemed a little incredulous, but I actually think that three parallel investigations by different investigators was actually a good thing. Because the parallel investigations each ran down the various rumors and theories. 
and ruled them out. Sure. So that by the time we knew from Susan Atkins what had happened, all those things had been put to bed. All those potential motives, drugs, gambling, mafia, you know, coven, witches, all that had been all that had been run down and run out. Mm-hmm. And you you can't say that those investigate any one of those investigating teams had tunnel vision at Manson. Because they didn't know Manson's name until Susan Atkins confessed and gave it to them. So, do you want to go ahead and take the break now, real quick? Yeah, we can certainly go ahead. I think we're doing. I, I think we're doing pretty well tonight, in spite of our little basketball sports rabbit hole. Yeah, we are. Yeah, we are. Well, yeah, we are. Uh, I guess we'll be back with more clear and convincing right after this, ladies and gentlemen. When I get to the bottom, I go back to the top of the side. Well, stop and it's gonna knock me down for a ride. Till I get to the bottom, I'm gonna see you again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But do you, don't you want me? Are you looking for the best deals for your vaping needs and accessories? Then check out the guys at Sub-Ohm Vapors. With daily specials on a wide selection of mods and juices, they will surely become your one-stop shop. Ray and the guys at Sub-Ohm Vapors located at 6929 JFK Boulevard, Suite C in North Little Rock, Arkansas, want to see you. Join them on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, but more importantly, visit the store or call 501-392-6487. Sub-Ohm Vapors. Vape it like you built it.
Hopefully get her back here in just one moment. Let me see if something is uh, messing up here. Lisa, can you hear us? Lisa. Michael? Yeah, oh, there you are. <laughs> I accidentally put my phone on hold. I was about to say, <laughs> I, I, had think, no... uh, I think that one was you, Lisa. I love live radio. I know. I know. Tonight is just not going my way. Yeah, I must have done it when I was coming inside. Oh, it's so, okay. You just have your right. there for a minute. Yeah, I, I think when I was coming in the house, I must have hit it. And I, I've had this phone for a year, and I still haven't figured it out. Yeah, I remember when you first got that phone, you were like, oh, so nice. And then you were like, crap, I can't figure it out. Uh, I, can, I can get on the Internet. I can make phone calls. I can send texts. I am learning about the apps, but um, I am not particularly well-versed in them okay. at the moment. All right, so uh, so we're going to talk about the raid on Spawn Ranch. And I found a copy of the search warrant. Uh, the family was uh, suspected of being involved in car theft. And so the uh, Los Angeles County, I think it was the sheriff's, uh, did a big raid, and they had all kinds of jurisdictions out there with them. But, you know, you're dealing with a big property, and you're dealing with a lot of people. Um, I, I think that it's probably prudent of them to go out there with a big show of force. I think Highway Patrol and county and city, uh, Chatsworth city people, you know, police helped on the warrant. Um, the investigation was, uh, for stolen property, uh, property of things used as a means of committing a felony and, uh, property of things in possession of a person with the intent to use it as a means of committing a public offense. So I think they were looking for weapons. Right, And then, of course, property or things which consist of an item or constitute evidence, which tend to show that a felony has been committed. So they were looking for stolen property and uh, uh, probably weapons. And in 
August of 69, uh, Los Angeles County Sheriff's LAPD, uh, they did a flyover of the Spawn Movie Ranch, and they observed a 1969 Volkswagen laying in a ditch, and they determined that the Volkswagen was stolen. Okay. It was taken from a Volkswagen dealership in Van Nuys on July 15, 1969. Okay. So they put together the warrant, and it was signed on August 13, 1969, and the raid was conducted on August 16, 1969. It's also possible that the gentleman who purchased the interest in Spawn Ranch helped spur this investigation because he didn't like Manson and the family being at the ranch. And Spawn didn't like him being at the ranch. He didn't want to lose Squeaky and Weesh, so he let somebody else do the dirty work for him. Uh huh. Um, but uh, the uh, warrant was served at 6 a.m. on the 16th. They arrested multiple people, uh, mm-hmm. several men, several women. The women gave their um, probably most of them probably gave fake names like Sadie Mae Glutz. And right. uh, so uh, they were arrested, taken to L.A. County detention. However, there was a wrong date on the warrant somewhere. Oh. And I think it could be – well, no, it's, it was probably more likely than not – a typographical error, because this would have been put produced on a typewriter. I know right. you've probably never seen one of those. True. But they used to exist. If you watch old movies, you can see them. Um, it could have been, a, and I've I've never been able to determine where the wrong date was. Whether it was the wrong date on the uh, affidavit of facts as far as when the theft occurred mm-hmm. or if it was a wrong date on the uh, date of execution if they took it out on the 13th uh, you know did they did they not execute it they executed on the 16th or should it have been executed by the 15th I'm not quite sure because everything just says it was a wrong date on the warrant and it doesn't doesn't describe what that date was. Um, now there was a statement on the warrant that on the twelfth of August, uh, the information was presented to the district attorney's office. Uh-huh. And it could be that that wrong date, if it was presented on the thirteenth, to the DA, not the the right. 12th, you know, but the it, what it ended up happening was uh, 
they had a wrong date somewhere on the warrant, and so they just turned everybody loose. I think the property they knew was stolen, they didn't give it back. Because, yeah, you know, <laughs> clean hands doctrine would say just because the warrant was wrong doesn't mean you're getting this shit back. Because you don't, you don't right. have clean hands. Um, and they determined that everything was stolen. So everybody was released. And um, then, unfortunately, uh, Charles Manson believed Shorty Shea was behind this raid, which he may have provided information to the new owner that was then provided to police, but uh, it may be more likely than not that Shorty Shea, even though he would have loved to do something like that, did not actually do anything. He may have wanted to do something and didn't follow through. But uh, around August 26th, Shorty Shea was murdered. And we talked about that a little bit last week. And uh, so, of course... Charlie has kicked off Helter Skelter, and so he decides after the raid at Spawn Ranch that they're, the family is going to move into Death Valley. They're going to find their hole in the ground where they can go and hide out while chaos reigns Right. Uh, with the, the race war that they kicked off. Right, uh, and of they course. come out the world and so on and so forth. Right, exactly. Um, now, what's really interesting is is not only were uh, black panthers or African Americans were never suspected in any of these murders, there were no really? retaliatory crimes against African Americans in response to the murders. Okay. So, I mean, Manson completely backfired. But, I mean, let's be honest. A lot of his plans just make no sense. Like, the paw on the wall means Black Panther. Or maybe to Manson. Right, exactly, to Manson. But it didn't mean that to anybody else. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so, uh, so, they moved to a, a remote area of Death Valley... Uh, called Barker Ranch. And they're out there for a while. Again, they've got stolen vehicles, they've got stolen parts, engines, all that stuff. And uh, Inyo County was investigating that, and then an earth mover was blocking a road that Charlie Tex Watson and Bruce Davis wanted to use, and they got mad, and they set it on fire and destroyed a county earth mover, this out in the desert. And that really got Inyo County involved. And so Inyo Inyo County had a raid. And they were much more careful with their warrant. Good. <laughs> there were no date errors on their warrant. Um, they executed a warrant. I think they were searching for about two days. 
on the last day, an officer was, I think, just doing a final check to make sure that they had gotten everything and everybody. And Uh he hears a noise coming from under a sink, and he finds Charles Manson under the sink, and Charles comes out and says, Hi. Um, again, you know, and Charlie at Spawn Ranch and at Barker Ranch, when he was told he was being arrested for vehicle auto theft or county earth mover, he thought that was funny. Wow. Uh, Charles, I swear Charlie's a character. <laughs> he was a character. I've been watching a lot of his interviews. And he was a character, but he was also crazy like a fox. Yeah, true. I think he wanted to give the impression of being incompetent because that could benefit him somewhere right. down the road. Um, so he was arrested, and Susan Atkins was arrested. And I believe after after Barker Ranch... She was actually arrested and held on suspicion in Hinman's murder. Right. I could never find any details as to how that happened because Bobby wasn't talking. Um, The only thing I can think is maybe sometime during her statement in Inyo County, she let slip that she had been involved, or she may have just been held because of her association with Bobby Boothway. Always possible. Yeah. And so uh, Atkins goes to, Manson goes to jail in New County. Atkins is transferred to Los Angeles County uh, to what was called the Civil Brand Institute. And that was the women's jail at the time and while she was in civil brand she confessed to two different women at two different times and told each of them substantially the same things Um, and it all started with do you remember the tape murder I did that and then she relayed details about what they did and why they did it, and her being kind of crazy, um, you know, she bought into Charlie's thing about killing people as love. If you love them, you have to kill them. Right. Or killing them shows them how much you love them. So she was proud and of it. Crazy crap. So she was proud of it, and she was bragging. And... um one of the things that she told uh, the women was that uh, Sharon Tate was begging for her life, and she said, bitch, I don't have any mercy for you, and then stabbed her to death. She also said she tried to cut the baby out, but that did not turn out to have been accurate. Um, Atkins had been using drugs for a long time. And remember when we talked about her, She's someone who went on the road with people committing on robberies. Uh-huh. So her 
her, you know, personality was one, perhaps excitement, perhaps I only care about what benefits me. I don't care about anybody else. She may have had a little touch of sociopathic tendencies where she had no empathy for others. And the only thing that mattered in her world was her, which is where she and Manson were a lot alike. Right. Very self-centered. And, yeah. And uh, the women that she confessed to, they reported her statements to them to police and prosecutors. And that led to the break in the case that solved Hinman, Tate, and LaBianca. Because once she started talking, she wouldn't stop. And that had also been a problem with her as part of the family on occasion. Because we talked about her getting kicked out of the family a couple of times because she was talking too much. Right. And uh, the uh, the raid on Barker Ranch and Manson's arrest also came at a good time because he was growing increasingly more violent toward the women in the group. Really? And the girls in the group. Uh, Diane Lake, who was a teenager, she was like 14 or 15 when she joined the family. She was a runaway. She uh, was 16, I believe, in 1969, and he was beating on her. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think uh, I've, I've seen a couple of uh, a couple of interviews with Catherine Sher, who was Gypsy, and he was beating on her. And he was also, you know, kind of veiled threats toward anybody who wanted to leave. And, of course, prior right. to the raid on Barker Ranch, I think after the Spawn Ranch raid, before the move to Death Valley, Linda Kasabian left her daughter. It was prior to the Spawn Ranch raid. She left her daughter and fled back to New Mexico. Uh-huh. Um, and her daughter ended up going to child services during the Spawn Ranch raid. And then she was able to get back, get custody back from, uh, from the uh, authorities of her daughter Tanya. I just found the error on the date. Mm-hmm. It has sworn, subscribed, and sworn to before me on this eleventh day of August, nineteen sixty-nine. Oh man! And. So probably that was the date. That was the date error. So who found the error and allowed him to be released? Was it their defense attorney? It, well, no. Since it happened within a couple of days, I would say probably the district attorney's office. Oh wow! So the because DA when you're, actually like, "Hey, we made a when, mistake, so go ahead and let him go." Yeah, when. When you're arrested, it's the district attorney that decides whether or not to bring charges. 
whether or not to convene a grand jury, whether or not to bring charges by information. And so I think what happened is he got the warrant materials, saw that the warrant had the 11th of August. It was executed on the 16th. You probably would have had to, it would have had to have been executed within three days of being signed. You can't get a warrant and just hold on to it forever. Right. You want you know when it's when it's signed and it's going to vary from state to state. Uh, you have a certain amount of time, and just like in Arkansas, if you want to execute a warrant at night, you have to get a special permission and prove to a court executing the warrant at night if necessary. I think it's the same way in Louisiana. Okay. Um, so. Uh, I think that the district attorney probably found the different dates on the warrant and the date that it was subscribed or signed was wrong. And so he knew that he couldn't file charges because uh, they'd be thrown out. I mean, you know, because they were defense attorneys. If he had filed charges, their defense attorneys would have found it. It might have taken a few months. For it to get to that point, but the yeah, that would have been found, and the case would have been thrown out, and then you could never charge them for anything, whereas here right. they can let them go back to spawn ranch, they can think they got away with it, and then we can get a good warrant and get them for essentially the same things because they're going to keep doing it, yeah, absolutely. So um, once Atkins had confessed and the the information was reported, um, I think one of the one of the women had written a bad check. Her uh, and I believe her name was Virginia Graham. She also had been to the Cielo Drive house when Terry Melcher and Candace Bergen lived there. So uh-huh. when Susan Atkins was describing the rope over the beam. Virginia Graham knew that she had been in the house. And Veronica Howard, I think, was a uh, prostitute. I'm not sure. Not positive, but I seem to recall that there was one woman that was in there for a bad check and the other one was a prostitute. So, um, but she also, she contacted the DA's office of the police and said this inmate, Susan Atkins, is confessing to the to these murders. And they also, Susan told them they had like a hit list. They were going to go after Stephen oh. Queen, Frank Sinatra, Elizabeth Taylor, and she delighted in telling the women what they were going to do to them when they killed them. And that it was all Charlie and the family. And she was probably thought she was recruiting. Wow. But I mean, and, honestly, she um, thought she was doing the right thing. I mean, she thought, you know, she probably thought Charlie would be proud of her. Yeah. Probably so. Um, That led to a grand jury, and 
counsel was appointed for Susan Atkins, and a deal was made for uh, death penalty being taken off the table in exchange for Susan Atkins' testimony at the grand jury. And so she testified. And indictments were handed down for Bobby Boussoulet, Bruce Davis, Susan Atkins, Patricia Krenwinkel, Manson, Ben Houghton, and I believe Mary Bruner, mm-hmm. who had been present at Gary Hinman's. Uh, once the indictments were handed down and people started being arrested, other people cut deals. Mary Bruner cut a deal. She did end up testifying uh, at Bobby Boussoulet's trial, which is in the future. Uh, but then she changed her mind and tried to recant her testimony when it came time for uh, Manson, Atkins, and Davis to be tried. Okay. And then arrest warrants were issued for Charles Watson, Patricia Quenwinkle, and Linda Kasabian. Watson had gone back to Texas. He sought extradition from Texas and lost, and he was extradited back to California. He was tried separately from Manson and the others. Patricia Krenwinkel had gone to Alabama, and um, she also fought extradition from Alabama, but ultimately lost and was transferred back to Los Angeles. And then Linda Kasabian had gone to New Hampshire. And when she found out that an arrest warrant had been issued for her, she voluntarily came back. She, like, went to the town, turned herself in, and let them send her back to Los Angeles. Right. And, you know, she's she's one who never killed. She did not kill or harm anybody. And she was in a situation she couldn't do anything to help anybody. But, you know, she didn't kill or harm anybody. And then it looks like just prior to... Um, the grand jury and the indictments, Leslie Van Houten was arrested shoplifting. Okay. And so she was being held in jail when her indictment was handed down. Hmm. And that is, there were, you know, there were a lot of pretrial. Um, of course, they challenged every bit of evidence. Um, each family member had their own attorney, but Charles Manson was trying to run the show. Still? And one of the first, oh, of course, he, he always tried to run the show. I think he was trying to run the show until the day he died. 
Um, one of the things he he every all of them uh, all of them demanded to be allowed to represent themselves, which the judge said no because the death penalty right. was on the table. He this was before uh, the Supreme Court decided the case that deals with rights of self-representation and the procedures that a court has to follow in order to determine whether or not a criminal defendant can represent themselves. Um, But the judge determined after hearings that they really should not be representing, that representing themselves was not in their best interest. Well, the thing I want to know, you know, you mentioned the death penalty, but I mean, let's be honest, Charlie was kind of crazy. Doesn't that fall in the we can't get the death penalty range? No, and we'll talk about that a little bit more at the at you know next week when we talk about the trials. Mm-hmm. Um, no, because he he acted erratically, but it was an act, right? It wasn't really, and 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 he had no documented psychiatric history. Hmm. He was just. A, I think he had one evaluation, one psychological evaluation years before, where he was found to be manipulative and aggressive, and you know, all things that were not going to help him avoid the death penalty. Okay. And of course, this was pre, this was pre uh, pre Furman versus Georgia. Okay. And oh, pre yeah. Greg Furman versus Georgia. Georgia. Correct. And so this was when uh, the the way the death penalty was applied and and even mitigation at the punishment phase was not. I want to regulate it isn't really quite the right word, but um, basically probably what happened at the penalty phase is they were able to put on information about their drug use and, and facts, you know, about their upbringings. And I'm sure, you know, Charlie trotted out the no mother and father, poor or woe is me, raised in the penitentiary system all my life. Uh, right. To try and gain sympathy, but uh, and people just did not look at it that way then. True. I mean, the way we look at criminals now as a society is very different because, for the most part, the media and and society wants us to have. Sympathy. Even though this person killed someone, we're supposed to feel sorry for them because they had a bad childhood or they were abused or they abused drugs or, um, you know, the, the, the girlfriend was mean to them or broke up with them and broke his heart. Uh-huh. And started seeing another man or cheated on him. And so 
we're supposed to have sympathy for him. Right. Even though he killed her, and that goes way beyond what is acceptable when your heart is broken. Right, absolutely. You know. But in 1969, there was not going to be a lot of sympathy for anybody who participated in the murder of a pregnant woman two weeks from giving birth. Right. Or less. My niece was due on the 4th of April. Mm -hmm. My great-nephew came on the 25th of March. True. Babies come early all the time. Mm Mm-hmm. And the sad thing is that baby could have survived. If he had been born that morning, he would have survived and been a healthy, happy kid. Well, I mean, they say also, you know, I I hate to draw parallels between Sharon Tate and, you know, Lacey, but they say Lacey's baby, you know, could have actually made it had, you know, the circumstances been a little bit different. Correct. Yeah. He he could have been born he could have been born the morning of Christmas Eve and lived a perfectly happy, healthy, normal life. I was early. I think I was a little bit earlier than um eight and a half months. But uh Excuse me. <laughs> that came on all of a sudden. Um, but, you know, still. Um, because I was due later in October and I was born September 14th. Uh-huh. So, um, but, yeah, but, you know, either one of those babies could have been born. And they would have survived. And I, I don't think at the time in 1969, I don't think that the law permitted them to be charged with the baby's murder. Right. I think that law actually was, you know, wasn't it Lacey through Lacey that it became permissible? No, no, no. Because they charged, they could not have charged Scott Peterson with Connor's murder. Okay. Had there not been a law saying basically what the what the laws say is if a baby could be born and survive then it's murder. Now, you know, if the person is three months pregnant or six weeks or eight weeks, that baby could not be born. And survive. Right. Um, but I think any baby born eight weeks premature, I think most babies, even eight weeks premature, have a pretty good chance. Right. Um, and I've heard something like that. So. But yeah, no, the, the law was put into effect because they couldn't have charged Scott with Connor's murder if there was no law. Oh, uh, 
Lisa? I guess we got, do we have one or two more? One more, I think, because I think what we're going to do next week is we're going to wrap up, talk about the trials, talk about the direct appeals. There wasn't a lot of post-conviction claims. Uh, Oddly enough, Manson did not file any post-conviction claims at all. Uh, And... uh, so I think maybe he liked prison a little bit more than he wanted to admit. Um, and then we'll talk about the parole, you know, some of the parole hearings and some of the claims made during parole. And, of course, we got Manson's, you know, he was given interviews up until, I don't want to say four years before he died. And... um also, and I was, I was kind of hoping Brad would be able to call to talk a little yeah. bit about, um, and, you know, it's it's okay that he didn't, uh, but tell him we missed him. Yeah, and, um, you know, a lot of people, a lot of people think, well, how could he even be convicted when he never laid a hand on anybody? And he was never even there. And so we make we'll talk about that a little bit. Okay. But that's that's more deals with during the trial. Not so much, you know, because police can bring charges. It's, you know, what you prove at the trial that's going to determine whether a person is ultimately convicted. Let's go ahead and throw a bow on this one, Lisa, and let's get on out of here, I guess. All right. Thank you for listening to Clear and Convincing with Lisa O'Brien and Michael Carnahan. If you like our show and want to know more, you can find us on Facebook. Go to our blog at clearandconvincingpodcast.wordpress.com or follow me on Twitter at O'Brien L. Ann. Join us next week on Tuesday, April 2nd, 2019 for Part 4 of State of California versus Charles Manson. We'll talk about the trials, direct appeals, post-conviction claims, and efforts by family members to be released on parole. Until then, everybody have a great week and stay safe. Good night. Huh.